0: I'm Jake Morecambe.
1: I'm Ellen Lee Beter.
0: Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better
1: planet. On the show, how ethical is your fashion? Maybe you rock the vintage secondhand wardrobe, or maybe you're into the big name designers. I'm a quality shopper myself, so I try to buy stuff that'll last, and sometimes that means splashing a bit more cash.
0: We'll be tailing down the supply chains of some of these bigger name brands and looking at how sustainable are they or aren't they?
1: Also, when we talk about sustainability, we're ultimately looking at solutions to stop things from getting worse, right? But what if we took it one step further and looked at what we as humans can give back?
0: This is called regenerative thinking and we'll be looking at some regeneration practices a little later on, but up first... Remember last week, Ellen, where we found out that you can decompose your own hair in your compost? Yes.
1: I feel like I'm like a bit of a crazy now because I said that, but I think it's a great idea to take it home after the hairdresser.
0: But we also found out that you can put it into your worm farm as well. So let's take a step back and look at how a worm farm actually works. They love banana.
2: They do love banana, they love banana and but you know what they love more, they love watermelon.
0: That's Miles and Kate, they have worms, well technically a worm farm. They home a small worm community in their apartment in Sydney's inner west. So we used to have a garden with a, a great big compost bin which is full of worms and bugs and an amazing kind of deconstruction of food happening in there. But then we moved to an apartment block, but we decided to keep our worm farm because it'll help us make little bits of watery, juicy stuff that we can use for the garden, and it's just nice to kind of take care of them. And they're pretty much part of the family now.
2: It's like having a thousand pets. Since we aren't allowed a cat or a dog in our apartment, we've got a thousand worms, but they're not declared on our lease.
0: We've got way more pets than other people who just have a cat.
2: (laughs) And they're youthful. They can't cuddle them
0: at night. Well, they may not be so cuddly, but useful, yes. Like a compost, a worm farm is useful to break down a lot of your food scraps. It's a nice thought too, to be feeding your little friend something as opposed to just chucking those scraps in the bin. So that's one benefit. What are the others?
3: Hi, my name's Leanne Colwell. I'm a student at the University of Technology, and I run the worm farms here in the garden at Gumal.
0: Gumal is one of the student accommodation buildings at the University of Technology Sydney. I met with Leanne on the Gumal rooftop to have an up close look at their worm farm. So, if we lift up this little mat thing here, it's got what's underneath here?
3: This is called um, a worm blanket, and it's a hessian bag, which I've distressed a bit. I've soaked it in rainwater and put it in the sun. And the advantage of using this kind of a worm blanket is that it functions as a love hotel for the worms. They like to get in in amongst the weave and reproduce, shall we say. Um, And I think they might be cleaning themselves on it as well. Over time, it breaks down in the substrate of the worm farm, the coir. And I've got some, some over there ready to go for the next lot that I apply. It also functions as a bit of a moisture reservoir because we don't want the worm farms to dry out. When they dry out, that's when the cockroaches invade. So they're like a moist environment, and that blanket helps to provide that. Also, it protects them from vibration and also protects them from light. They don't like the light. Oh, there are so many. Yes, there's far more than you would realise. When we did the last lot of casting harvesting, we were stunned by the density. We really should have harvested the castings weeks before, but everyone was busy over Christmas and so on. So we just recently did it. You can see these are mature ones here. They're thick. They're reproducing all the time. They're hermaphrodite, and they're very happy in this particular mix. I gave them new coir bedding when I harvested the castings. I replaced the bedding with new coir, which is a coconut fibre, which I soaked in water and then drained because it's got too much salt in it, that coir. So then I rehydrated again and then I packed it into the worm farm and uh, put the worms back with some um, food. And the way I normally feed them is with a health shake. I make like a, a thick smoothie kind of of the waste food that I'm going to put in the worm farm. But my blend is just dying, so I've decided I'm going to bring forward my experiments to find out what their preferences are. I think I know what they like, but I want to be (laughs) sure with these experiments. So what I'm hoping to find is that they're going to go crazy over the chickpeas, which I gave them last night. So they've got a fair amount of protein in them. I know from extensive experience that they adore fermentable substances like banana peel they, they ferment, they're crazy for that so
0: when you're talking about making this little smoothie for them is that with all the different foods you've got in here because i'm just looking here you said the chickpeas, chickpeas. there looks like either some peas or beans chickpeas, bananas yep. um, lemon peels
3: now traditionally people say that they don't like citrus peels and that would be because of the essential oils with all the volatile oils you can get away with putting those and other things like garlic and chilli in very small amounts in a health shake, but you can see here that they're not going crazy for it. It's got to rot down a little bit more before they're going to um, eat it, but also the brassica family or the cruciferae family has sulforaphane in it, so that they're not so crazy about that. They're Of course, they're going to go for what they really like, and they're also going to go for the higher protein content food and of course it must be a vegetable um, protein it can't be an animal protein if you fed it something like eggs or meat or dairy that attracts you know vermin and pests and everything you don't want that that's another advantage of the worm blanket it minimizes the amount of pests there's always going to be the odd ant around and slugs if you put things from your garden into the worm farm Um, then that's a way of introducing the slugs. And I've seen the earthworms getting along fine with the slugs, but I'm not here to feed the slugs. I'm here to feed the worms. Now, I've put some of these herbs on the top of the dill because I'm thinking that that's going to discourage some of the pests around the place.
0: You've got here, there's a little list that has the yes and no's of what you can give to the worms. Some of the no's are meat and fish, dairy products, dog and cat faeces, um, even some citrus, but you've just got some lemon in there and explained yeah. that. What are some of the other things that people do wrong when they try and get one up and started?
3: Probably the main thing that they do is that they give up too soon. They interpret the worm's behaviour... Um, As the fact that they're dead um, and often they're just lying dormant. The fastest way to revive them and test them is actually to put on some water. I've sometimes looked at the substrate and thought, wow, they're just, where are they? And then I give them a drink of water and then they revive and they're really quite active. So if it's really hot, they'll just, you know, kind of zone out and you need to revive them with a bit of water. The other thing they do is that they smother them. They need to breathe and this is an advantage of using the worm blanket that's porous, like this hessian bag here, which I've got from um, cafes, like All Press at um, Rosemary. Some people use wet newspaper. Well, they can't really breathe through that newspaper. The other thing they do is they absolutely carpet the top of the worm farm with food. It's actually quite a good strategy in winter to make the health shake as, as I've recommended, and put it over a reasonable area. The microbial activity that's happening on the health shake will actually provide some additional warmth for the worms. The other thing that they do wrong is that they don't have the vent open um, so that the worm tea can come out and it can build up inside the worm farm and it becomes anaerobic. and that, That's when it smells a bit pongy. So you don't want that. You want the worm tea coming through the whole system into that container and I suggest to people that they come by twice a day and turn it on, turn it off, leave it in the open position, but sometimes there's a bit of um, stuff that builds up.
0: And you called that worm tea. What exactly is worm tea?
3: Some people say it's the urine. I'm not sure that it is, but it's certainly a bodily fluid that emerges from the worms. It's the main product of interest to home gardeners. Some people call it worm tea or worm wee. Other people call it worm juice. I won't have a bar of that. If you don't (laughs) juice the worms, why would you be calling it worm juice?
0: So what, what would you then use the worm tea for, or what is it most commonly used for?
3: It's used as a we'd call it a, a soil amendment. It acts as a tonic, so it unlocks the minerals in the soil. Some people call it a fertilizer, I'm loath to call it that. It's more of a tonic and it unlocks things and it potentiates a lot of the processes in the soil food web, as it's called. So it acts as an input for some of the nematodes and other organisms that live in the soil. There's thousands and thousands of different varieties of invertebrates that live in that soil, very happily, and for them it's nutrition and it helps them metabolise and add their bit to the soil. It's really quite magical. The other thing that you can do with worm tea is apply it as a pesticide, part of your integrated pest management, so you would dilute it. The usual rate is about one litre of worm tea to about 10 litres of water and you can usually spray that. It's not going to help with every pest but it's a considerable part of the process. I'm a permaculturalist and our philosophy is we look after the soil. The plants look after themselves. You just look after the soil. There's a hierarchy of um, applications for the worm tea and I would say put them on your um, herbs and your vegetables first. Don't put it on Australian natives. Some can tolerate a bit but Some people only apply worm tea like once a year to their Australian natives. It has too much phosphorus in it and you won't get success. But in terms of herbs, it's just unrivaled for herbs and vegetables and flowers. And that's really interesting to me because I have an interest in apiculture and I want the bees to have enough forage. So if you want to attract pollinators to your garden, you've got to provide them with the nectar. So there's no better way really than to address it down the line by providing them with the castings and the tea, which leads to an explosion in the number of flowers on the herbs.
0: Leanne Colwell, UTS student. And guess what, Ellen? This is something Leanne told me as well. Apparently, Cleopatra was called, or had a nickname, the worm worshipper, and was <laughs> obsessed with earthworms, and she considered them to be sacred. And not only that, she actually established laws to protect earthworms because of their importance to the planet, so no one went around stepping on worms.
1: Well, I think when I start my own worm farm, I'm going to have to call my favourite Cleopatra and make it an itty-bitty ground to wear. <laughs>
0: You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. Ellen, did you catch what Hermione was wearing at the Met Gala this past week?
1: You mean Emma Watson? No,
0: I mean Hermione. Well, yes, Emma Watson, but ever since she played Hermione in Harry Potter, uh, I'll always consider Emma Watson to be Hermione.
1: But no, I didn't see what she was wearing.
0: Well, it was this, let me give you the picture, it was this huge black and white Calvin Klein gown that had this really long trail going off the back of it. It it was really pretty, but the cool thing was that it was completely made out of plastic bottles which were repurposed. And this is just one example at a huge event like this, but it presents a bigger issue at hand here, which is the sustainability of the fashion industry.
1: Second to oil, fashion and textiles are the most polluting industries in the world,
0: So how do you choose your clothes? Are your fashion choices tied into your carbon footprint? Well, Sam King spoke with David Waller from the UTS Business School to find out.
4: A lot of consumers would say that they're interested in having brands that are ethically produced and put together the right way. But uh, when it comes to the retail outlet, at the time of purchase, then other things come into consideration. So they're looking at brand they're looking at how it looks. They're looking at price. In more recent times, that p- people are actually noticing that there is a difference between brands and that it's important to find out what particularly the big brands are doing in relation to where they're sourcing their fabric, where, who's doing the, the labour and actually putting the, the product together.
5: What are some of the big brands that are doing that? Brands like Zara, um, Levi's,
4: definitely um, doing well, H&M there are some brands that are definitely sort of hitting a high level when it comes to making sure that they've got the right ethically produced product. And I'm not sure if you have the statistics in front of you, but are they seeing results in general? It's hard to say for me from a profit and sales perspective, but in image, it's important that companies build a strong image in being a socially acceptable brand.
5: Mm. And so with that, It's actually working. It's all about building that image as well, isn't it? Um, I'm wondering, does that ever create a situation where brands employ dodgy marketing to make a product seem maybe more ethical or sustainable than it is?
4: Unfortunately, there's good marketing, there's bad marketing. And so at times, there's some brands that may focus on a particular area or try to say that they're, they're better than maybe what some of the researchers said gorman recently got into trouble as they were listed as not being as transparent Mm. and their response was uh, on their twitter site to join in to say you know that we know where we're Mm. sourced you know we're a good company and a, a number of people responded with no, the the research
5: shows that you're not. I'm curious as well, what about brand loyalty? Uh, for example, if someone with a, a loyalty, say, to the fashion label Chanel, were to find out that the brand behaves unethically or unsustainably, do you think they'd change their habits? Chanel's an interesting case because it is a
4: well-known brand. It's got a, an amazing history and image. But, for example, in the fashion transparency index, it got a low mark. One of the the things that happened was that Chanel then responded very quickly Mm -hmm. saying we didn't fill out the the questionnaire because we didn't think that we needed to, Mm. uh, that we didn't see that we would be sort of part of this. We actually source our product from countries like Scotland, Italy and it's not as though we uh, actually uh, use the sweatshops in, in Asia. I've got a feeling that Chanel will be right on top of the the next time uh, they're going to be doing the the questionnaire and Mm -hmm. uh, working on the index to to try
5: to improve their image. Do you think that's an industry-wide sentiment?
4: With this particular report, it's the first time that it's been produced, and it may have been the case that some of the the organisations didn't take it seriously, but I think Once they've seen that there's been a lot of publicity about it, then they'll definitely make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm. One other thing about Chanel is when they responded, they pointed out that the Transparency Index was looking at the communication of what they do rather than exactly what they do, even though it was looking at, at from published material from the companies. And uh, Chanel wanted to make a point. There's a difference between the communication saying how
5: ethical you are than how actually being how ethical. S- so theoretically, yeah. a brand could score very well on the transparency index, but still engage in unethical practices, theoretically? You'd,
4: you'd hope not, no. or that uh, there may be um, uh, some practices that may not be as clear or as transparent as what they're saying. and. I think that's why it'll be interesting to see the next version, to see how the other companies react.
5: And just moving away quickly from high-end brands, it's not easy to find a purely ethical T-shirt for under, say, 20 bucks. At what point do you think price overrides the knowledge that you're wearing something made for next to nothing in a cramped and unstable factory in Bangladesh?
4: It's a good point because, to a certain extent, price can overrule an ethical decision that you can say I will only purchase what has been made correctly and uh, with fair trade but sometimes when you look at those products they are more expensive and particularly if you're looking at a simple t-shirt that you're going to wear price does overrule ethics.
5: And the other end of the scale, do you feel as though uh, the sort of consumer that would buy Chanel or or Prada would shy away a little bit if they try and go towards uh, the greener side of things, the more sustainable side of things? For those at the high end, a lot of them probably don't even think about what those big brands are
4: actually doing from a corporate social responsibility aspect. They just see the brands. If they then see, say, Chanel being more corporately responsible, they'll just probably think good on them. Mm. That's why I. That's another reason why I purchased
5: that brand. Do you feel as though the current standard of ethics in the fashion industry is sustainable uh, when it comes to human rights as well as the environment? For years, there's been
4: um, the concern about sweatshop uh, manufacturing of, of garments, but. Nobody sort of took it too seriously, Mm -hmm. but when you saw that there was the incident, over a 1,000 people died at the Rana Plaza in uh, in Bangladesh, mainly women who were working on well-known brands, that was a real shake-up for the industry. And that's three years ago. For the last three years, there's been more of an interest, more of a concern about being ethical, in the uh, in the fashion industry,
5: mm-hmm. what are some of the ways that a brand that might engage in some of these practices would become more ethical? What are some of the things they can do? Part of it is actually being clearer in the communication
4: of where the brand is from, what the uh, where it was made, the source of where it was manufactured, and also uh, the actual uh, the material that mm. it was from. You're always going to have the bad eggs, the people that are that are going to try and do the very cheap product and send it out there. And I think that's the way of the industry and it's the way of a lot of industries. But when you're looking at sort of more high-end Western brands, they've got to be a lot more careful in how they present themselves. And it's their responsibility not only to produce a product that is good for the, the customer, but also produce a product that is going to be good for the person who actually made the
5: product. Mm. Is there any way for you or I to sort of tell the difference between a, a superficial appearance of being sustainable and an actual uh, commitment to, to that? Having these indexes as a start, the Baptist Church has also
4: got a, a new index uh, in um, in Australia, So do your homework. Mm. When it comes to shopping, it might be sort of something that is an easy purchase that you might think of, a a shirt or pants or something like that. Mm -hmm. But if you really want to make a, a difference in this area, it's good to do your homework and see who are the brands that are doing the right thing.
1: David Waller from the UTS Business School.
4: Over the course of this
0: program, we've looked at sustainable solutions to make our lives more eco-friendly and durable for the long run. Talking about sanitation, managing food waste, energy alternatives.
1: But what if we thought less about holding the line and more about what we can give back to the planet? There's a word for this new way of thinking. It's called regeneration. Here's Karen Wilmot from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS to tell us more.
2: In the Building, property, construction industry, we've been working on sustainability for a long time and that's about doing less bad. But the next generation of thinking is this idea of regenerative, where you're giving back, you're doing something positive. I can paraphrase a little story that's known in the industry is about the cherry tree. Every year it puts out in a great abundance of blossom and everybody delights in seeing this beautiful tree with all of its blossoms. And that creates food for birds and sustenance for bees and nutrients for the soil. So it gives back to the environment. But that's A great deal of pleasure and positivity out of it. If it was taking an efficiency approach, it would probably put out one little flower and nurture it and make the piece of fruit drop to the ground and nurture that single pit. And, you know, it doesn't need an abundance of flowers, but because it's a systems approach, that everything has an interconnectedness, it can give a lot more positive things to the environment than just its own sustenance and its own sustaining. Another example I can give is a development down in Victoria and it's a piece of agricultural land that's been seriously degraded ecologically as a consequence of actions from humans. It's slowly losing its ability to be agricultural land and the owners are looking at how they can bring that back, how they can stop the salination, the inundation, the dying of all of the local vegetation and creatures and the way they're looking at doing it is to build a new town there a little housing development that'll be self-sustaining commercially but use that as an opportunity to do what they need to do with the land with the water to bring back the land and make it viable again and give it a purpose and leave the place better so it's an ecological repair that comes out of doing the development and the development becomes the catalyst for and the economic viability, if you like, for doing that work.
0: How do you kind of then gear people into thinking about regeneration as opposed to just thinking about what we can do to hold the line? How do you encourage people to get on that bandwagon?
2: If you understand the interconnectedness of things, how one... Aspect will impact on others, you start to understand things in more than just an efficiency or a conservation sort of approach. Another example is with urban greening. It's quite a popular concept, the idea of having plants on your building, as we can see across the road with Central Park. The benefit of a tree is that it can create shade. It holds water in the landscape, so it actually cools the local environment. If you have a tree near your house, it's a big tree. It's likely to mean it's cooler in your immediate environment of your house. makes it cheaper to cool the house, more comfortable to live there, as well as giving back to biodiversity. If you've got a vegetated environment, that can help clean the stormwater runoff, hold more water in the landscape, put less pressure on the stormwater system. So there's a lot of consequences that come out of the thinking. And the other side of that is a concept called urban heat island. So our cities are several degrees warmer than the land would have been without our development because of all the roofs, the paving, all the hard surfaces, all the dark surfaces so the more you have urban vegetation the cooler the whole urban environment is. Um, We get an awful lot of deaths every year as a consequence of heat in summer so if we had a more green environment we would It would be better for the health of people and the well being of people. I'm getting the message from numbers of different directions that the ideal scale to work at is the neighbourhood scale. You need to be bigger than an actual house or a a development site because you have impacts on your neighborhood, but you get too big and it's hard to manage. Things like distributed energy generation, where you might be able to generate some energy on your site but maybe the optimal size of generation is more than you need to use on the site so if we have ways of being able to sell it to our neighbours we don't have the losses by sending it out onto the grid the transmission losses you're just using it locally same with water, you might be able to treat water on your site and sell clean water to your neighbours or there are examples of buildings around that do what's called sewer mining where they actually tap into the sewer going past the front door, treat it and return cleaner water as part of their own treatment of their own sewage on site. So there are ways of working at neighbourhood scale with infrastructure. That means that um, more than just your own site benefits. We're starting to embrace broader concepts than just energy water waste we're looking at beauty and justice and well-being and health as equally important criteria in how we assess these things or the criteria we use to design for development so it's a, the people aspects are just as strong as the technical aspects
0: what are the well-being and beauty aspects what's what's that
2: some of the tools around, there's a one tool called the Living Building Challenge that is used to assess and rate buildings and it has a criteria for beauty. So it's a recognition that an ugly building doesn't do anything for the soul, isn't an attractive thing to use. It's effectively, it's not going to have as long a life if it's not giving pleasure. Um, you might have all the technical things right, but if it's a horrible place to be, well, why would you bother? So it's part of the core needs that a a building or a development should deliver. One of the buildings they certified in America, they needed a sewage treatment system, a wastewater treatment system and they did it with um, basically plant beds, water running through plant beds and it has a big, bright, sunny lots of glazing around it in in a building and it is now the most popular building on that big development site for people to visit. They have yoga classes in the space. It's highly well regarded. It is a beautiful place to be and it's a wastewater treatment plant. Who would have thought? <laughs> Part of the consideration is that something has is durable it's, it lasts and it can for all of the effort that goes into making it, the resources the people, resources, the money that it has a life that's worth using. If it's not beautiful that life is going to be much shorter because people are quite ready to get rid of it very quickly. Whereas if it's beautiful people protect it. You know, People go out and and fight to keep heritage buildings that they value and will make efforts to reuse them and adapt them over time. But um, if it's horrible then everyone's pleased to see it go and what a waste of resources that is.
0: Do you think then people might be fighting to protect the most beautiful waste sewage treatment facility ever
2: there. Yep, yep, that happens. Historic examples in Sydney of waste incinerators and they're now heritage sites. They've been converted into all sorts of other things. They were highly valued because they were great pieces of architecture. That was just burning waste.
0: Karen Wilmot, research principal and architect at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS.
1: Karen will also be presenting at the UTS Speaks seminar on the 11th of May at UTS. So if you're around the Sydney area and keen to find out more, head to uts.edu.au.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER.
1: For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability.
0: You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability.
1: I'm Ellen Liebader. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week.